Hi there and welcome to another episode. This week we're joined by a songwriter, producer and musician who after many years in the entertainment business has collaborated with top European musicians as they promote their latest single, It's a Lie. We're joined by Malcolm Ormond. Hi there, Malcolm. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of On The Mic. How have you been lately, Malcolm? I'm great, and thank you for having me. Great stuff, Malcolm. We're not going to give any ages away right now, but we're going to go way back in time to tell our listeners a little bit about your history. I mean, you're a musician, songwriter, producer, and so much more. But back in the day, I think you started just as a muser, as a keyboard player. Let's go back, right. way back when, and give us some uh, guidelines there. How did your history begin in the music industry? Uh, let me see. I think I was 10, around, I was 10 years old. And uh, my father actually took a drive into the town. I stayed in Paul at that point and decided he's going to buy an organ just for the fun of it, not for any reason. So he came home with this organ. And then myself and my brothers, sisters, we all tried, my mother tried. And eventually, I'm the one who just carried on with that. So by 11, I was taking part in like organ competitions. Yeah, and then at 12, I actually came second uh, on, in a Western province organ competition uh, with one of the songs I wrote. So my interest in songwriting happened already at a very young age. I was 12 then. And as the person coming second, I actually got live gigs out of that. The guy coming first actually never got any gig. And I was playing all around Paul, Wellington, in little restaurant. And at 14, now I'm skipping the year, but at 14, I, I began playing with my first band. And uh, most of my uh, pocket money and that I earned at a band. My uh, father very seldom paid me, gave me any pocket money. So that stayed like that, school bands, weddings, couple of gigs. By matric, you know, we were, I was still playing gigs. Then I went to the Army in the Air Force. I joined the um, entertainment corps in Pretoria for a while, but I uh, preferred coming back to Cape Town. In the, so I came back to Esterplatt. After the Air Force, I was asked, we formed a band in Cape Town. I was asked by a vocalist I met during school to join their band. 
and that was a band called Gantry. And I was with Gantry from 1979, okay, this is now giving away my age, till uh, 1980. In 1980, I joined a group called Kid Gloves. I was with them for about a year and a bit. Um, after Kid Gloved, I began playing with an original band that was with John May, was the guitarist who's passed away, sadly. Um, Dieter Stutz, um, Wendy also they eventually formed the Sweat Band. But we began a, a group called Candy O. Still don't know who thought of that name, though. We had one single in 1982 called Flash. Then about 1980. Then we, I played a lot of original bands. I was working as an auditor for the Rupert International Group. So at that point, I was traveling a lot. So I couldn't do the normal gigs the way most of the other bands were playing. Three, four night slots at a gig or a three-month gig. I had to play original bands doing loose gigs whenever I was back in Cape Town. I think then in 1986, 85, 86, I was asked to stand in as a keyboard player for a group called Contraband. At that point, the keyboard player, the original keyboard player had to leave for the army. So I played with Contraband till the end of 1986. Yeah, then the original keyboard player came back and I decided to do other stuff. At that point, I was already had a little uh, four-track recording tape, old tape machine, and I, I began writing songs heavily from commercial songs with a bit more production from about 1982-83. I began writing quite a lot of, a lot of songs. And then uh, I think from about 1987-88, let's say, and then I, I, I wasn't playing in band, I was just writing songs. 1989, I had three of my songs recorded in Britain. They were used for advertising and that. Actually, the money I made out of that, I actually paid off my first house. Um, wow. And then what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. That's, I still got those songs, yeah, which is quite nice. I still, the studio that recorded them, actually still using them. Let me see. In 1990, a friend of mine asked me to help him out at his restaurant on Sunday nights. We don't mind teaming up with him. He sings. So I said, I would, but I'm, I knew he had a Gibson um, contract that wasn't a Les Paul, it was some jazz, Gibson jazz, something like a great guitar. I said, okay, uh, I will um, record all my keyboard parts and I would like to play guitar. I, I could play guitar, but I was not I was more of a keyboard player or more known. And I think after a year playing with, with John at that point, I got office as a, as a guitarist in bands. And then I joined a group called, I think it was a dance group, Gypsy, yes. But I was a keyboard player there. But at a gypsy, we formed a band called Abacus. Your father will remember this because your father used to come to us a lot. So uh, there I was a guitarist. And then I began taking guitar more seriously. So this was about 91, 92. So I played with Abacus from 1992 to 94. 94, my son was born. And at that point, I said, right, I'm finished. I've been playing bands now nearly full time from the age of 14. So I was 36 then. So that was a long, long stretch that I've been playing. I said, okay, I'm finished. And then at that point, I began working on songs, getting little tape recorders, writing for people. 96, I actually did an Afrikaans CD because someone told me I can't write Afrikaans songs. I said, well, you don't get something like that. You get songs and music with, with lyrics. So, yes. so I said, all I did is what took my songs and translated the lyrics. And there we are. You want to call that Afrikaans? Great. But uh, I don't think anybody calls a Spanish song Spanish. Uh, <laughs> if it's to, or American song American. Or uh, in England, no one calls the songs English. They call it rock and roll or country or whatever, hip hop. 
You know, so in South Africa is very unique there. We've got our own genre called Afrikaans music. A genre is actually something based on chord structures and rhythm. That's how you, you, you figure out the a genre of a song. You know, so when people think, say, Irish music, you're not really thinking the language, you're thinking of the rhythm, you're thinking of the, the actual Irish, what you, the fiddles and the flutes and... Uh, with your jigs and stuff and, like that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Once again, yeah. it's got nothing to do with the language. It's, got, it's about the rhythm. Okay, the Afrikaans CD came out. I should have, I was phoned, uh, I think, 96. Good Pretorius actually phoned me at home and asked me if he could use the songs, but he doesn't want the artist. And me, in my great big wisdom, says, no, I'm not going to drop the artist, so don't worry. Thank you very much. But he wanted all the songs on the album. So I might be a bit, yeah, not a good choice then. <laughs> But now tell me, Malcolm, if, if uh, you mentioned that you started with songwriting quite early on in your career already. When you started with songwriting, just cue me in a little bit. Were you actually writing songs just for yourself on a keyboard or were you actually creating these songs when you started out? Was it with an idea of I'm writing these songs for the bands that I'm working with or was it just something for no, yourself? No, at, at 12, I wasn't in bands. So I was just I was writing instrumental songs for myself like piano pieces or organ pieces. So there was okay. no lyrics at that point. There was no lyrics involved. It was a, it was a melody because uh, no, I never knew singers. I didn't know how to record them. There was nothing. I mean, we, we really had nothing. So all yeah. I could do is write the song and record myself directly to a little uh, cassette tape. But that was it. That's all I had and at that point. One, one off. <laughs> so either you had to sing with a sona. My actual recording, where I began using vocalists and that uh, only began happening, I would say, in the early 90s. I'm lying. Sorry, sorry. Let me, in the early 90s, I began using digital recordings, right, in the middle 90s, when the digital things were up. Uh, my actual first songwriting, I think, happened about 1984, 84. Yeah, I began okay. writing songs with, with four-track, a little four-track. Yeah, and I still actually got some of those songs, yeah. Using that four track 89, we got the contracts in England. That's right. But my digital recordings began only happening about the middle 90s. The standard of those songs, those days, if I listen to it now, it's actually, uh, I thought it was great then, but if I listen to it now, it's not. <laughs> and tell me, how's things changed uh, uh, over the years with your songwriting in general, Malcolm? Uh, you, you mentioned you started off just doing instrumental piano pieces for yourself. How over the years or over the decades did that change? Obviously, you started incorporating vocalists and things like that. But from a songwriting perspective with you in particular? I think when I began in the 80s, we were just trying to say, okay, this is it, so let's do this. We were, we were chasing money, chasing the market. That changed a lot by the end of the 90s. We started to the early 2000s. Right up there, we were saying, okay, I'm going to do this, let's do this. And not one of those songs, except for the three songs I actually got in England, which was quite nice. But after that, nothing really happened. And then I think in the middle of 90s, that I stopped a bit, but we, were, we kept on looking for commercialism. Then in, I think from about 2003 to about 2010, I actually stopped, nearly stopped totally. I, 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 I was working, I was recording uh, songs for... Um, corporates and all that. So I stopped really writing. I was I was in quite a bit of money doing corporate work as a recording producer and just writing little riffs. So that was quickly. And then someone told me in 2010, I should 
sent some of my songs over to the States. There's a place there. Uh, it was someone else, uh, Reverber, uh, Reverberation, I think. That, so, but I didn't quite like them. But then I got onto a, a company called Music X-Ray. And I actually got a lot of success with them. They, they, I think they accepted from 2011, accepted about six of my songs, which are still being played all over America, used for ads. Then I realized my strong point was writing for um, documentaries, ads. Yeah, I'm not strong on hip-hop or the very modern dance stuff. And yeah. by, the, by the 2000s, uh, the, 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 the world of music had changed a lot. And I'm still very rock-influenced. Uh, combining rock and classical, um, there was still a, a market in extreme sports, in ads, in documentaries. I haven't made a film yet. I've tried some of them. but And I think from about 2011 to 2012, I'm I'm still thinking that I I I forgot I stopped thinking about if if there's a market for the song or not. I would write songs that I like, and that was that's it, you know. And and uh, after when I changed my attitude to to do that, I actually got more attention <laughs> for my songs than I had when I was trying to make money out of them. I actually have made more money out of the songs now than I made when I was trying to write for money, which is quite weird. I hear you. And, and and those three songs that, that you mentioned that did so well for you in England, how did that actually happen? How did those uh, uh, songs I kind of make it for you? Yes, interesting. I was staying in Tableview, a little townhouse I was staying in, um, and my neighbor was British. And then he used to come over to me and say, what are you doing? And I said, no, nah, I had a little four-track machine, and I used to just jam some guitar with the keyboards and even sing myself over something. But uh, at that point, I, I was playing with contraband. So I used to use Brian Mitchell, who was our contraband lead vocalist at that point, to come through to me. And he used to do recordings with me on Saturday afternoons. And then he said, but he's got an attorney friend in England. Why don't we send a cassette over? Now, that, that's way before internet and any of this. So we used to put, oof, I think we sent over 30 songs, or maybe even more. Uh, on cassettes, and we should like from when we sent it to when they receive it, and we get answer could be three to six months later. Yeah, <laughs> I think the songs we made, uh, we, we, we cracked in '89, we were writing in '86, '87 already. I've still got, uh, if you ever pop around there, I'll actually show you. I've got stuff from Paul McCartney that listened to it, uh, Mercury Records, uh, a lot of answers from a lot of nice guys. And uh, yeah, then luckily the one person just freaked about those three songs. Actually, he freaked about two. It was two songs. Then he did a combination of the two songs he liked, and he actually co-wrote a new song with me, using ideas from both the other songs. Okay, so 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 that's basically that was still, but still writing commercially. I was still thinking commercially. For about 2010, I stopped thinking commercially. I I, I just sat and wrote songs that I like, that I would like to listen to. And it's actually got to a point because I don't really like a lot of the modern music. I would go sit in my studio and just, if I feel like a bit of a good ballad, I'll just write a ballad and listen to that. Or I would like to write a rock song or I'll do a bit of jazz or a bit of country. I would just do it myself. So I don't really listen to a lot of other people's music anymore, I'm, um, which is maybe a bad thing for now. But I mean, then again, I'm not influenced by outside music. So what I write could sound like it comes from somewhere else. I think some of the newer stuff does sound like it's from somewhere else because I had to now work with someone way in Europe, which was a bit of a new thing for me. Recording in general, Malcolm, how did that come about? When I did the, the Afrikaans CD, we recorded uh, with Andre 
and SD, uh, who had a studio where Tully, where Tully spaced out sound walls. So Tully used to pop in there, and I used to go to around to watch, see Tully work a lot at, in his studio. I used to go around to Jerry Barnard's studio in, in uh, Greenpoint. Um, so I used to look at what these guys are doing, but at that point, the analog gear was just way too expensive for the average person. So when the digital era came out, which was about 98, 99, 99, I got that, um, that machine that I think I used to come around to your house with. Yes. 98, 99. Remember, that was the first digital eight track I got. Correct. Um, yeah, and that's, I think that's where we did your first CD on, on yes. that little machine. Right, and then I got after that, uh, what's about 2001, I got the big, I got the 18-track Roland uh, digital recorder. See, all these things had effects built in and all that. So, so it's just, but then the explosion happened when uh, the PC market, when, when the Pro Tools and Cubase and all the millions of DAWs coming through now. That was a serious explosion where every musician can basically for 10,000 Rand, they have a full-on studio in his, in his room. But you can have all the equipment. If you don't understand what, what the, the fix and what mixing and all that is, it, it's still, yeah, you won't, you won't do uh, very well uh, with, with anything, with any song on that. You need to understand what you're doing. So it's been yeah. two years that we're recording. I'm not the world's greatest producer, but I, I like, I, I do what I do, what I feel fits for my songs. And if someone else likes what I'm doing, and yeah, then I will do that. I know you've been uh, collaborating with some artists in Europe. It's uh, exciting. So uh, tell uh, our listeners about that, that and what you've been working on. Okay, let me see. Let me go back about a year and a bit now. Uh, when it was 2017, I wrote a song called Cries of Thunder, which was like a, when this anti-Zuma thing was big. I wrote it in support of that, that movement at that point. And then these friends of mine in Luxembourg heard it. And in 2018, that was the beginning of last year, uh, they, uh, they actually contacted me and said, Malcolm, don't you want to come over? Don't you want to work with us? Don't you want to do this? And I said, you, you know, I'll try, but I'm really busy at the moment. I'm trying to get my business off. And that was going on. And then March happened. And we were all suddenly dumped into lockdown. And at that point, I wasn't even sure if my business is going to survive or anything. So. Um, then I began speaking to France in Luxembourg and then he uh, and to Ray. I know the two of them from South Africa 20 years, 18, 19 years ago. And then I was introduced to uh, Luke Rodemacher. Uh, he's a Luxembourger and, and we've been getting along very well. He's highly qualified in music. And then I had the, the first three weeks, which was really my, my work came to a total standstill. I, I just spent, so in the first three weeks, we managed to finish three songs and then It's a Lie came up and then. So after five weeks, I know, I fully produced four songs. And on average, one song before that was used to take me between six months and a year. But what was interesting, I used to do um, guide tracks at home, put the bass and then email it through to uh, France and them. Then he would put down a, a vocal track, send it back to me. Uh, then I would say, no, I don't like this, or this is a wrong key, let me change the key, send it back to him. They will do it. Then they would go get Ray to do a guitar part, or maybe some drums from Luke. Each, the nice thing about the four of us, which we'll, the group Fade to Grey has existed since the African days. They carried on with Fade to Grey. But what we're going to do now is we're going to call the original group that just plays the original music FTG. So it's still Fade to Grey, but it's now FTG. 
Okay. So, so FTG, all the four of us involved in FTG, the original music, have all got studios at their own homes. So uh, some evenings we'll sit, everyone in the studios and just communicate with each other about ideas, send in. So I would be sitting, getting the message, just go, Poof, listen to it. I say, okay. And we, and as long as uh, everything syncs up. So if, if my song I'm writing is 100 beats a minute, they just tell me it's 100 beats a minute. They send me the exact track the way they got it on their recording system. I put it into my recording system and just syncs 100%. <laughs> and then that's, uh, so it's, it was it's just the first time I've actually worked like that. And at the moment, I'm working on a, a ballad where the singers in Luxembourg, it's going to be Ray, but we're using a, a lady singer who lives in Dubai. <laughs> so that's how I'm doing all the music. I'll be doing the eventual music mastering. They, uh, some of the vocals has been done in, uh, in Luxembourg. The orchestral arrangement will be done by Luke in Luxembourg as well. Then that backtrack will be sent through to Dubai. The vocals will be done there because this lady has a studio right in the flat there. And then everything, so we all just get together. Right at the end, I'll put everything together and, and mix it. Every The person who actually is the main songwriter on the song, uh, it's his responsibility to mix a master. Okay. Everybody can do like this, but the final mix and master is that person's responsibility so to maintain the feel that he wanted. Well, our times have changed because you would have never been able to do this back in the day, eh? I remember working with Vanessa, who is now the lady in Dubai, working with her, her first album in South Africa. And that was 2003. At that point, we were, I, uh, one of my songs, um, I wanted to send it over to Nashville. It was like a country ballad type of song. And we actually couriered a cassette over there. And what, uh, this is 2003, by the way. CDs were still, still there, but it wasn't big. They then couriered a, a cassette back to me, telling me this is the lady who's naturally who's just sang your song, and this is what's going to be used for you, yeah, the unplugged version. <laughs> that, so there was no internet, and if you think by 2011, 2012, I, was, I, was, uh, I used to get requests for certain songs, and then I used to hit the button, the song, five minutes later, the guy would answer me and say, oh, I love the song. <laughs> or don't. We can use it, we can't use it. Within, I would say on average, within a half an hour from me sending a, a song to America, I would get an answer back. Where if this was that was ten years ago, let's say to, uh, up to about two thousand and six, two thousand seven, it would take you three months to wait for that answer. Yeah, no, it's fun. So I'm I'm really enjoying it. So it's like um, it's a passion. So music's a passion. It's not it's not a job. As soon as it becomes a job, I will stop it permanently. The, the, the contacts I've made in Europe now is incredible. I mean, yesterday, um, Luke actually was chatting to me about Office 11, and he actually said he's going to Austria to market. Uh, can he fly me over? <laughs> and I would have been on the plane if our borders were open. And tell me, what has the response been to those tracks that you've recorded with the guys so far? Well, it's a lie in particular. What has the response been over um, in Europe? I think there's not a lot of that happening. Not, I'm not quite sure. I don't think the marketing's been done. I thought I would get a bit more marketing done over there. Yeah, I mean, just likes and all that. It's not really seriously commercial song, but I also think it's just too much. The whole lockdown, there's just too much of everything. There's, there's too much people saying, yes, we agree. There's a lot of people saying we don't agree, right? So I think there's just too much politics in the world at the moment. Sorry, when I, when I did Cries of Thunder, it was only the Zuma thing. But now we've got this, this, this. I don't know. It's every day there seems to be another thing happening. China, China's going into the second outbreak now. 
and the who's warning against the wall, they must beware. So all these type of things. So I'm not even sure what's conspiracy and what's not anymore. But I'm still healthy, so I'm sure. Well, I'm still healthy as a conspiracy to me. But I'll let <laughs> you know if I ever get sick. <laughs> what's your verdict on what's going to happen in, in our industry? Well, in, in the music business as a whole, uh, Malcolm, I mean, you've also got so many friends and um, colleagues out there in the entertainment business. What do you see happening in the future? Whoever survives and whatever gigs left, there's going to be a lot less artists and going to be a lot less gigs. Um, the guys surviving are the guys with, with solid foundations, um, the big the big known artists, the guys with uh, good investments. Um, I think your day-to-day pub singers who are making a living and having to pay day-to-day, month-to-month, or live month-to-month, they're the ones suffering the most at the moment. And, 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 I mean, and then also the sound engineers. Wow, it's, it's, it's scary, and, and no one really knows. At this point, the worst affected industries, the entertainment industry, the hospitality industry, and the tourism industry. And yeah. uh, my sister's in tourism, and only works with overseas tourists. So, I mean, she's been at Stansfield now forever, since March. So, I, in the financial advice industry, what's actually happened is, although there's a massive loss of jobs, there are still people with jobs making money and buying houses, and that's where I. So I, at the point, thought, "Wow, it's going to affect me badly." But I was just saying to my partner today, "I'm I'm was busier today, uh, maybe for the last week or two weeks, than I was before the lockdown." She says, "So in a way, with the the, the with the lockdown happening, there's been a two and a half percent interest rate drop. So the people who are still working for the government for fixed salaries and all that." They are able to buy houses now that they couldn't actually afford a year ago. Two and a half percent is a massive, makes a massive difference on your yes. payment. Let's talk about this latest single called "It's a Lie." What is it basically about? Who did the lyrics on the song? Ninety uh, percent of the song I wrote. I did all the lyrics. Um, I did all the the chord structures. I did most of the melody. France uh, added some uh, different phrasing. But uh, that basically was my idea. And when I began writing the song, I actually contacted them all, all four of them, and said, guys, I, I need to do a video of this. I need it to get out there, and we need to push it. It's not about the virus. It's, it's, uh, the virus exists, but so does a lot of other viruses. And, and, and facts are showing it now. The virus might be a flu on steroids, but it's not close to as fatal as what they're trying to make out. So the lockdown, I'm, I'm really protesting against the extreme lockdown measures that everybody's used. But now if you look at South Africa, they are the cleverest medical whatever practitioners in the world that works for our health department. Because they're the only ones that have banned alcohol and cigarettes. So what they yeah. say is, guys, they know what they're doing. So, uh, so immediately, just with that, because we're the only country going that extreme, makes me think there's there's uh, underlying agendas here. This is this is politics at play. This is not nothing to do with uh, saving people's lives or trying to help people. This is just pure politics. But then again, you know, I mean, uh, we'll see. I would say let's wait till the end of um, September, October. We'll see what happens. Do you remember a, a, a DJ at KFM called Rob Vember? Yes. Okay, Rob Wimber's dad died the 29th of May, another COVID-19. He came back from the United States. His father had a heart attack. His father was obese and was a diabetic and had hypertension. His father, before going to hospital after the heart attack, was there was nothing wrong with him. 
At hospital, they said, no, he's positive for COVID-19. So his death is also now COVID-19, although he had a heart attack 48 hours before he died. So that, and that, that you can openly go Google. Uh, Rob Wimber just says, no, he doesn't understand. There's some things that he's not sure. So he, in a nice way, he said, listen, guys, this is a lot of bull. And then he said, he spoke to the undertaker that worked with his father's body. And the one, the undertaker said, the one body he's got there that covered 19 related was a motorcycle accident and the other one had a stroke. See, yeah. so what I'm saying for political reasons, why, I don't know, but uh, there's a lot of this going. But those, that's the first real proof coming out now. Yeah. You know, so, but you know what? Uh, we don't have the power to overturn anything. We, you know, no one's going to take bazookas and storm parliament. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is nature's way of culling the, the human earth population. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a, it's just a strange, I think we're all in a very strange situation and everybody's trying to figure out what's normal about it. So what, what, what we did on the music side, uh, we're going to still pump It's a Lie, but I'm also going to turn It's a Lie into a normal music video. And then um, what's actually happened, the lockdown has just brought a bit of interest back into me to write songs again. I think for about three, four, five years, I, I, I got into a slump. I might. I, I even said to the guys overseas, if they got any maximum age 25-year-old, vocalists, we can look at writing for them. I don't want to write for 40-year-olds. You're wasting. No one does that. So if you want to, we want to go modern, and I want to try to do like a bit of hip-hop with dance and that, you need a face and a body that goes with that music. It doesn't <laughs> help that we as 60-year-olds go and try stuff like that. It's going to look ridiculous. You look fine playing guitars because that's the age group that we're all in when, when the, the guitar rock music came out. It's, it's going to be difficult for me to spend two or three hours every single day again playing music. So what I'll do is almost from the end of, I get lots of melodies. And I said to France um, in Luxembourg, I've got gigabytes of ideas on my PC in my studio. Gigabytes of chord structures, of lyrics, of began writing. Just every idea I get, I always record it in case I can use it in the future. I never just leave it because, you know, you've had that. So you, say you, you, you go sleep at night and you get this fantastic melody and say, oh, this is great. And you wake up in the morning and say, oh, my word, it's gone. It's gone, so yeah. When that happens to me, I actually get up and go record it. I'll play it out to the keyboard. And I just write down the lyrics, poof, and save it and leave it. And I'll go listen the next day if it's worthwhile. So out of that, I can actually write sorry, 10 albums just on what's lying on my gigs. But now, if I'm going to put a lot of effort into something, then I would be looking at getting some sort of remuneration. But if I'm just writing one or two songs a year, having fun, relaxing, it's my therapy, then I don't really care about it too much. But uh, but I know the guys in Luxembourg got so interested in saying, Malcolm, you need to stick to writing the rock stuff. But then eventually we had a meeting when, yeah, I mean, last week and yesterday, a quick one. And I said, guys, but we have to just get some sort of aim now, what we're working, what, we, what we're trying to achieve with this. We can just sit and write songs and put it on a couple on YouTube now and then, and that it's actually wasting my time. Then I can go back to writing my Pink Floyd type of orientated songs that I like. And I've always <laughs> asked someone, as soon as you say you like my song, and I would say, why? And they say, oh, no, it sounds nice. And then if they don't like a song, I'll say, why? Because it doesn't sound nice. I say, yeah, but why? And then they look at me, <laughs> so you need to break it down. <laughs> The next song we're busy doing, a new song is a ballad I wrote called The All the Pain. The touch. It's, 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 you, you might think it's a gospel song, actually. I was surprised when someone said it to me, and then I listened to it. I said, oh, my gosh, it could be a gospel song. So, okay, so that just happened. I was just sitting there mixing some of the rock songs on, took a piano, and I just began singing and playing. And then this idea came up. 
And just with that idea, I sent it over to France, and he freaked about the song for some reason and said, no, I'm going to finish it. So what I've done is I've just sent them a, a rough demo of piano, acoustic guitar, and some strings. I said, guys, we'll keep this uh, unplugged in that, and uh, that's my lousy voice on it. But I always sing my own songs to make sure they understand the melody that I've got in my head. I don't want a, a brilliant singer that doesn't um, capture the emotion. Malcolm, thank you so much. Well, uh, we look forward to those new singles lined up. Where else can people listen to that? Is it available on YouTube? On YouTube, we're going to actually try to get it onto uh, iTunes and Amazon shortly. On YouTube, if you type my name in, you can type, I think it's under Fade to Grey as well. Um, on my Facebook page, you will find it. On my Facebook uh, music, musician profile, you will also find it. And then we'll, I'll, I'll take it from there. But then I've got, I've got a couple of different ideas going forward, especially after I heard you sing the other day. I haven't heard you sing for a long time. And that's live. That's not like me uh, producing my voice a bit, <laughs> <laughs> using the stuff that everybody uses in the world anyway. No, great um, stuff, Malcolm. Well, thank you so much. We, we look forward to some, uh, some more new music from you. We're going to play out the show with It's a Lie. So to all the listeners out there, have a listen, guys. An awesome track. And uh, you can hear it right here on this podcast. Thank you. Until we meet again, hopefully after lockdown, hopefully soon, we don't stay uh, too far from each other. Definitely. Thanks very much.
it's time to make a move. Stand up, let's raise the roof. Stand up to all the men in suits. Stand up, let's go back to our roots. Stand up, the devil's on the move. Stand up, they not telling us the truth. Stand up, it's all a lie, all a lie. Stand up, it's the world's greatest con show. Thank you for joining us on another episode of On The Mic. If you enjoy the show, please remember to follow and share with all your friends and family. To stay updated on news and events, follow us on Facebook, Oasis Entertainment. And if you'd like to make a small donation towards the show, please use the PayPal link in the episode description. For those with a small business or startup that would like to advertise on this podcast, feel free to contact me directly, justin at oasisentertainment.co.za